Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, international editor at The Economist. And this is Money Talks on Economist Radio. Coming up on today's show the declining popularity of the first-class seat on airlines. Many passengers, many busy business executives who would have gone on first-class flights are now going on these private jet flights. And Jim Collins, author of the bestseller Good to Great, explains the flywheel principle. It's an underlying logic. And the key is the understanding of what creates the inevitable momentum. But first, Robin Lee, the boss of Baidu, China's leading online search firm, has written a New Year letter to rally staff, warning that winter is coming. No, he wasn't, as far as we know, quoting from Game of Thrones. He was warning that the lavish financing that China's startups have come to expect has dried up. Reports of big job cuts have multiplied, including at the country's technology giants. Some have slashed bonuses, travel expenses and generous housing allowances. Austerity measures are the new order of the day. To discuss this new freeze, I'm joined by Stephanie Studer, The Economist's senior China business correspondent. Hello, Stephanie. Hello, Simon. So firstly, how deep is the freeze? Well, it seems to have affected a lot of different levels of the tech sector. So we're talking about both startups looking for early stage financing, as well as the tech giants, the BATs, as they're known, Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent. They are unveiling restructuring plans. And most of those do involve a bit of a workforce trim. And what about the smaller firms? Why are they finding it so hard to get capital all of a sudden? Well, a few different things have come into play. The first is that the government has made it more difficult for them to get access to informal sources of financing. Over the past year, it's decided to crack down on online lending. It also has warned state banks and others of making these riskier lending to private firms and smaller firms. And how much is it a reflection of the sorts of things the the Prime Minister, I think, has been talking about today, a a more general gloom about the overall economic outlook? I think that's certainly playing into the outlook in the business sector in general. Of course, there are questions of trade war on people's minds. So I think that the slowing Chinese economy is also playing into this. And how bad is it at the big firms? I I mean, I recall that Ant Financial, the financial arm of Alibaba, was valued at some phenomenal amount. I think it was $150 billion at the last time it raised finance internationally. Have firms like that now lost their glamour internationally as well as at home? I don't think they are, not yet, no. And in, in some ways, the bigger question going forward may be whether or not the sorts of problems affecting Huawei, a big Chinese telecoms company that is increasingly being barred from a number of Western markets, those concerns may start to seep into other Chinese tech giants 
trying to expand overseas. But for now, I think the glamour is still there. At home, it's interestingly the tech giant bosses themselves who have been speaking of this winter. We heard um, Robin Lee, but also the boss of Meituan Dianping, which is a big online services uh, super app. And he said in December that the year 2019 may be the worst year in the past 10 years, but it's likely to be the best in the next 10 years. But what about the employment implications, Stephanie? You say that even the big firms are laying off staff and cutting benefits for the people that are keeping their jobs. What other employment opportunities are there out there? Well, there is a battle for tech talent going on at the moment, even among the big giants in China. Interestingly, I think increasingly young people in China realize that they don't necessarily want to be working what they call here the 996 week, which is starting at 9am working for nine hours a day, six days a week. And we're seeing a shift happening of talent out of the expensive first tier cities like Beijing, Shanghai and Shenzhen, where rents are becoming really unaffordable towards second tier cities like Chengdu and Xi'an and Wuhan. I visited Wuhan this week and spoke to some tech companies there that have expanded and are essentially setting up second headquarters or parallel headquarters there besides headquarters in Shanghai or Beijing. And of course, those companies too are finding it much cheaper there. And local governments are wanting to lure both those talents and those companies to work in their cities. Stephanie, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. Next, the future of first-class seats on flights. Despite a boom in luxury travel and a sharp rise in the number of wealthy individuals around the world, it appears that we, and I say we loosely, are falling out of love with travelling in the first-class cabin. But why is this? To look into the phenomenon, I'm joined by The Economist's Gulliver columnist, Charles Reed. Hello, Charles, or should I say, hello, Gulliver. Hello. Now, we're talking about first-class travel, and for those of us who turn right when we get on a plane, this may be news, but apparently it's in decline? Yes, it's in decline. Many airlines are scrapping first-class completely. Other airlines are cutting the numbers of seats they have per plane. And some travel analysts out there are predicting that in a decade or two, no airlines may provide first-class whatsoever. What's actually happening? Is it just being rebranded as business or is it that there are more economy passengers? Well, in some ways, the industry has disrupted itself. Since the introduction of lie-flat seats in business class, which are seats which transform to a fully flat bed, many companies have been reluctant to pay extra for their employees to fly first class. In addition to that, though, there's also competition for the upper end of first class from private jets. And private jets enable people to pick their own timetable, which suits busy executives better than having to wait for a scheduled flight. And the competition from private jets is increasing because private jets are getting a lot cheaper. And why is that? Why are they getting cheaper? Well, in part, there's lots of new companies, lots of new private jet brokers, which are finding ways to use these aircraft more of the day. They're finding ways of filling the planes coming back from somewhere where they would otherwise be coming back empty, which lowers the cost of a private jet flight. And often, particularly when they're filling empty legs, they 
offer these flights at very low rates. And the result of this is that many passengers, many busy business executives who would have gone on first-class flights are now going on these private jet flights. And are there also tax advantages for buyers of executive jets? Oh, yes. Yes, that's very much true, particularly in America, where in Donald Trump's tax reforms, the American federal government introduced a tax break for buying private jets. So it's possible in America to offset the purchase of a private jet against your income taxes in the year it was bought. And this has meant that many millionaires and billionaires have been able to wipe out their entire tax liability by buying a private jet. This has caused private jet sales to boom in America over the past year. So this must be good news, at least for business class passengers who no longer have to sit there seething about how much better off the people a little further in the front of the plane are. But for the airlines, isn't this a problem? Because didn't they make quite a lot of their money out of selling first class seats? Well, yes, this is a big worry, particularly for airlines in the Gulf. For example, Emirates, well, although only 12% of Emirates passengers fly in business and first class, the Emirates makes 40% of its revenues from first and business class. So it's a big worry. However, for other airlines, which didn't make that much money from first class in the first place, this is actually quite a relief. This is because they um, didn't actually manage to sell many first class tickets. And instead, we're just upgrading passengers from business to first once they had overbooked flights. On another level, what about the environmental implications of all this? Because presumably, passengers leaving the conventional airline industry, which is one of the world's biggest contributors to carbon emissions for smaller planes, is making that problem even worse. Yes, that's exactly right. Although business and first class is uh, much less environmentally friendly than economy class, private jets are much, much worse, even compared to the fanciest first class features on uh, scheduled airlines. It's estimated that per passenger on a half-filled private jet produces 10 times or more in carbon emissions per passenger than compared to an average scheduled flight. And this is going to get much worse because in the next decade, we're going to see the appearance of supersonic business jets. These are business jets which can fly faster than the speed of sound. And these are likely to be very popular with business executives because it means that you can get across the Atlantic or across the Pacific much quicker than you otherwise would. However, these jets are much less environmentally friendly. For example, it's estimated that these new supersonic business jets will produce five to seven times as much carbon emissions per passenger compared to ordinary private jets. And an awful lot of noise, won't there? There'll be sonic booms. Will the the regulators tolerate that? Well, the regulators are changing the rules. So originally, places like America imposed rules about flying faster than the speed of sound in order to avoid sonic booms. But this wasn't because they cared about people's windows shattering when these planes were going past. This was partly protectionism, that the British and the French developed the world's first and only reliable supersonic airliner called Concorde. And they didn't want sales of Boeing's aircraft such as the jumbo jet to be hurt by this. So they introduced this rule. But the latest breed of supersonic business jets are being developed by American companies. The engine for these is likely to be made by an American company called General Electric. And therefore, American regulators are keen now to get rid of these rules. 
Charles Reed, thank you very much. And finally, the flywheel principle. According to Jim Collins, the author of the best-selling management book, Good to Great, this concept is vital to the success of major businesses. From startups and non-profits to healthcare firms and professional sports teams, this principle is key to understanding how momentum is essential to growing a successful business, says Mr Collins. He recently spoke to The Economist's Bartleby columnist, Philip Coggan, about his latest monograph, Turning the Flywheel. Jim, thank you very much for coming on. Perhaps you can start by explaining what that concept of turning the flywheel means. Yeah, when we did the research in Good to Great, we were looking at companies that had gone through a a dramatic transformation and they made a a clear leap from kind of mediocrity to sustained performance that lasted at least 15 years that was spectacular. And you would think that when you see externally this big inflection, that it must have been a dramatic process that produced a dramatic result. But what we found when we did the research was that the way it looks peering in from the outside is different than the way it feels on the inside. And on the inside, it's like turning a giant heavy flywheel. You start pushing with a lot of effort. You get the flywheel to go to two turns and then four turns and eight and 16 and 32 and 1,000 and 100,000. And it's gradually building cumulative momentum. And at some point, it hits this breakthrough. But if you were to go kind of go back and say, what was the one moment, right, that produced that breakthrough? No, you can't answer it because it's a cumulative turn upon turn, push upon push, building momentum in the flywheel. And that is really how it actually happens, even though we like to put a dramatic storyline upon it. Perhaps the easiest example to understand for listeners is Amazon.com, which is the first example in your monograph. So do you want to walk listeners through how that flywheel turned? Yeah. So let's take what they did. You can think of it as kind of a a loop that goes around where it's almost like a clock, you know, 12 o'clock, and then three o'clock and six o'clock and so forth. And at the start is this idea of we're going to lower prices on more offerings. And if you do that, you then you almost can't help but increase customer visits. And if you do that, you almost can't help but attract more third-party sellers. And if you do that, then you almost can't help but ex- expand the store, extend distribution. And if you do that, you can't help but grow economies of scale, which brings you right back to the top, and you can lower prices on more offerings. And the key is that what Amazon did was they understood that flywheel, and there's no one moment that makes Amazon, is that they turned that flywheel relentlessly. And the key is the underlying logic within it, that there's an inherent momentum of cause driving the flywheel around, A drives B, B drives C, C drives D, and around and around the flywheel goes. Their insight was we can make the flywheel principle from good to great our own by articulating our specific flywheel, which is what then launched me on the path of I need to do more to share with people how the flywheel really works. A lot of listeners might think, and I was thinking as I started to read the monograph, well, this is economies of scale, buy them high, sell them cheap. But not all your examples are like that. So I thought the Intel one was very interesting. That's a different sort of flywheel, which doesn't involve, at the start at least, trying to charge less. Exactly. So one of the things we point out in the flywheel is that the key is to get clear on your particular flywheel. And a key question is, where does the flywheel start? So in the case of Amazon, it's an economic to economies of scale model, and you start with lower prices on more, more offerings. But Intel's isn't about that. It's about designing the next generation of chips 
that customers need and crave. And that was driven by Moore's Law. And the background behind theirs was an innovation flywheel. You could also get out to, we have the Cleveland Clinic, which is in healthcare here in the United States. And their flywheel begins with get the right type of medical professionals, right? So each type of flywheel has its own flavor. And you have to really think through how is it that our flywheel turns and what are the components within ours, not necessarily to copy someone else's. If you just copy Amazon's flywheel, you probably missed the point. Is this book really aimed at business leaders? And then the trouble is, this is a sort of almost a catch-22, isn't it? You need all the components for it to work very well. And it's all very well saying start with very low-cost products, but maybe the business can't be the low-cost producer. So how do you break in? How do you create your flywheel from scratch? So maybe I'm going to give you sort of three chunks of answers right here because you've sort of asked three types of questions right at once. So the first thing I want to hit is your point that uh, or your question, is it just a business concept? And as we write about in the monograph, but also I've seen in my own work, these principles are not really about business. In fact, I've never really viewed myself as a business author. I study what separates great companies from good ones, but the companies drops out. And what you're really studying is great organizations in contrast to good ones. The reason I studied business is because that's where the data is. But it's ultimately about human systems. And we have a wonderful case in there of a school, a small school, an elementary school, where the principal took the flywheel principle uh, concept to create results in reading for the kids. We have the Ojai Music Festival harnessing it to an artistic enterprise. We have Cleveland Clinic in healthcare. So it's not a business principle, it's an organizational principle. Your second question, here's the key to a flywheel. A flywheel is not a series of aspirational action steps that you just draw as a circle. It's an underlying logic. And the key is the understanding of what creates the inevitable momentum. So you have to say, if we do step A, then we almost can't help but do step B. And if we do step B, we almost can't help but do step C. Now, the flip side of that is that you have to execute every component of the flywheel perfectly. Because imagine you've got a 10 on component one on a one to 10 scale and an eight on component two and a seven on component three, but then you got a, a three on component four. Well, if you execute only five of six components in the flywheel, you don't get five, six momentum, you get zero. And the reason is because each piece drives the next piece round and round. And that's the other side. You got to get them right in sequence and you have to execute every single piece else the flywheel momentum does not happen. Jim Collins, thank you very much. Thank you. Keep up the great work there. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. And if you like our journalism, why not try a subscription at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for £12 or $12. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. 
Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.